But I'd love for us to dig back into it, into the book of Revelation uh, in chapter 2. We're noticing a trend here. I think if you've, if you've been following along with us, you've noticed that uh, Jesus didn't write this letter to the churches in a time where everybody was doing okay. You know, I used to think... Uh, I used to think about this book of Revelation. You guys know that this was what Jesus showed John and what he told John. And he said, I want you to write down the things you hear and the things you see, and I want you to send it to the churches. And of course, in these first three chapters, we've seen seven letters to seven different churches. And those seven churches were all churches that John had an apostolic charge over. Let me just explain what I mean by that. You know, there's no letter in this, in this book. He didn't write a letter to the church in Rome or the church in Jerusalem or, or the church in Antioch. All of those places could have used a letter too. But he wrote it to seven churches that were in one section of the empire, which was the Roman province of Asia Minor. And these seven churches of Asia, as we call it now, even though most of you, when we think Asia, we think of what we call Asia now, which is a continent in the far east of the world. But to them... Asia was a province that's now Turkey and a little bit of Syria and a little bit of Greece. And so uh, as these letters were written, uh, we might ask ourselves, well, why were these letters written to these seven churches? And I've heard different theories, and some people have said, well, each of these seven churches represents a different time in church history. And I get what you're saying, although that you have to kind of bend some things to make that work. Um, some people say, well, each of these seven churches represents a different type of church in today, you know, or throughout history in today. And I could uh, accept that and understand that as well. And you can certainly apply it that way because we should hear what the Lord is saying to us. But on the other side of it, let me just give you a real simple reason why he wrote these letters to these churches. Because these were the churches that John was in charge of. These were the churches that John had oversight over in Asia Minor. So John was set up in Ephesus. And Ephesus was like the major city in the area, the, the, kind of the gateway to the rest of these cities. And so John was, was an old man, and he was overseeing the churches from Ephesus. And so he had a relationship with these churches. And I used to think that, that, that the whole book of Revelation just stemmed from the fact that John uh, because they, they couldn't kill him, they put him on the Isle of Patmos, that, that the whole book of Revelation was because John was stuck on an isle, and Jesus visited him because he was stuck on an island. But you know that this isn't just Jesus trying to give John busy work, you know, trying to give him something to do. This, this, is, this is not a, a, a book that's written because the emperor decided to put John on an island. This is a book that's written because it was absolutely necessary for that time, for those people, and it's still necessary for us today. And so when Jesus writes these seven letters, all of these churches have an issue that needs to be dealt with. Probably one of, you know, a couple of the exceptions being Smyrna and Philadelphia, most of the things that Jesus has to say to them are pretty good, except for the fact that Smyrna is being persecuted so severely that he says, I know what you're going through. Don't worry, I'm with you. I'd say that's an issue. I'd say that's something. It's not something they need to fix, but it's something they're dealing with. All of these churches have a crisis of some sort. And it's amazing to see how Jesus says, I'm aware of it. In fact, he uses the word, I know. 
To every church, he says, I know your deeds, or I know your perseverance, or I know your tribulation. He tells them, I know what you're going through. I said this to you before, but that word I know, there's, there's different words in the Greek language to say I know. And, and, and the phrase that's used here is, in ancient Greek, was used to describe when you said I know by observing. I've watched you. I'm aware of what's going on because I've seen it. Remember that he says he walks among the churches. So I imagine a church that's going through a tough time might say, you know, where's Jesus? You know, you know, it's been a while since we felt his presence. And he's telling them, no, I never left you. I've been walking amongst the church. I've been observing. I've been watching. And here's what you need to fix. Or here's what I'm going to do. Or here's what you need to hang on to in this time. In a future Wednesday night, we'll talk a little bit more about the culture of Pergamum. It's one of the cool things about going through these seven churches. We get to learn a little history, get to learn a little facts about the places as they were at the time. Uh, but tonight, I'm not going to focus so much on the culture or history of Pergamum, other than just to tell you it was a city that was set up, uh, was taken over and, and, and basically kind of reestablished, um, like many of these cities, when Alexander the Great rolled through. And uh, when Alexander the Great took over a big chunk of this continent, um, this was a city that he had helped establish and found, I mean, uh, certainly build on to. And then he left it to one of his generals who later uh, had, a, had a bit of a revolt from one of his generals. And uh, that started a dynasty in this area. And Pergamum was ruled by the Greeks and the, and the Seleucids for quite some time until a point where uh, the guy that was ruling didn't have any heirs to take it over. So he willed it to the Roman Empire on his death. And so Pergamum became, it was, a, it was a Greek city that became a Roman city. And like many of these cities, they're outposts of the empire. And you might be aware of the great persecution of the Christians in Rome, but what you might not be aware of is that most of that persecution started and was most fierce on the edges of the empire. So we talked about Smyrna a few weeks ago. They got hit real hard. It certainly got bad in Rome when Nero took over and some of those guys, but it was really bad even before then on the edges of the empire, on the, on the frontier in some of these cities here. And Pergamum had their share of paganism, had their share of issues amongst the Jews and the Christians. So I'm just going to read you what Jesus says here uh, to this church. He says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. And remember, when he says angel, he's not talking about like a being with wings. Angel, the word angelos, means, means a messenger. And so in some cases in the Bible, angels talking about a, a divine being like Gabriel or Michael. Uh, but in this case, he's talking to the messengers of these churches. He's talking to the pastors. He's talking to the leadership. And he says, I want you to write this to them. And, and the job of the person that he's, that's getting the letter is presumably that they're supposed to pass it on to the church. He says, write this, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, says this. And what an, I think you can tell a lot by the introduction of a letter, right? You, you know, and, and, and one of the great things about Bible times is that when they wrote a letter, they signed it at the top. So they signed it right at the front. You notice a lot of your letters in the New Testament start out with Paul and Apostle and Timothy. And, you know, they introduce themselves right at the beginning, which makes a lot more sense. Because when we get a letter, we kind of have to, if we don't know who it's from, we have to skip to the bottom and find out, then go back up top. They introduce, introduce themselves first. 
And I think you can learn a lot by how somebody signs their letter. You know, if I sign, uh, if I sign that letter, sincerely yours, or, uh, you know, forever yours, or, or um, uh, cordially, or whatever, the way I sign it might let you know a little bit of my tone in the letter. Well, Jesus introduces himself differently to each of these churches. And all of these things are true about him all the time, but it's important what he says about himself. And here he says, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this. I don't know about you, but if, if he started a letter like that to me, I'm like, uh-oh, a sword. What's he talking about? I thought I was going to get one of the good letters. Jesus, this is a letter from Jesus, the one who loves you more than your mama loves you. This is from Jesus, your best buddy. Oh, he starts this out and says, the one who has a sword. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you this is maybe a bit more encouraging than you might think. In the Roman Empire, a sword stood for authority. Because the Roman Empire had built their authority on the sword. And so one of their symbols that they'd use often for uh, the person who had, uh, you know, an ultimate judge, the one who had the power over life and death. Often when you'd see a symbol of a sword, it was talking about a judge uh, not as we would think of a judge, because the judges we have in our system have fairly limited powers. In the Roman Empire, they're talking about somebody that's got the authority to say, you're going to live or die. Now, consider that this church has endured some persecution. And they might have been led to believe that the government has the power to say whether they live or die. That the soldiers have the power to say whether they live or die. But Jesus says, I'm the one with the sword. I'm the one that's got power over the ones that say they have power over you. I'm still king of kings and lord of lords. I'm the one with the rule and the authority. I'm the one with the power here. And wouldn't you find that encouraging? Wouldn't you find that encouraging if, if you were... Uh, if a government was oppressing you and saying, uh, we've got the power over you, we're controlling you, we're dominating you, and all of a sudden Jesus says they're not as in control as they think they are. As it says in Psalm 2, the one that sits in the heavens laughs. That there's this sense of, hey, I'm still on the throne. I still rule and reign. And, and while they're in a stage of rebellion, it doesn't knock me off the throne. Sometimes we feel the effects of the world's rebellion against our king. Jesus said that, that because they hate me, they'll hate you. He told a parable. Remember about the parable he told where, where a, 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 a great king was throwing a feast and he went to invite people to the feast. And in fact, his messengers were so received so hostily. They were, they, were, they, were, they were received badly. They were killed. They were beaten. All because of the king. At one point he sent his son. You know, and, and here we are as messengers of the king, as ambassadors, servants of the king. Well, if the world is in rebellion to the king, sometimes you're going to feel the brunt of that. This church is experiencing the rejection of God by their own rejection. You know what I mean? So Jesus, it, it says in the Old Testament, it later is said that it's talking about Jesus and it's talking about us that the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen upon me. They're experiencing this right now, but here's the good news. He says, don't, don't let that convince you that they have control here. Don't let that convince you that they're, that they're the ones with all the power. I'm still on the throne. I still have the sword. It's a powerful sword. And he's, we're going to talk more about that sword 
in the next few uh, minutes together. He says this, I know where you dwell. So in every letter, he says, I know something, right? So far, he said, "I, I know something. And in this case, he says, I know where you live, which sometimes can be a pretty scary thing if somebody says, I know where you live. But it's a pretty comforting thing when Jesus tells you, I know where you live, right? Doesn't that help you to know? Jesus says, I know where you live. I know where you live. Especially because, look what he's about to say about where they live. He says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Whoa. That wouldn't be nice. It's not a nice motto for your city, you know? What do they call you? Well, we're Canada's only border city. We're the city of champions. We're whatever. You wouldn't want to say, we're, we're the city where Satan's throne is. How many, how many Christians are going to get in the bus and say, hey, let's move to Pergamum? Why, what's there? Let's all get, let's all move. Let's start. Why, what's there? Oh, that's where Satan's throne is. Oh, I'd rather stay here, thanks. In fact, our instinct is to evacuate, right? Let's get away from the devil. I don't want to be near the devil. Get away from the devil. But look what he says here. I know where you live. I haven't left you. I haven't abandoned you just because Satan's throne is there. Now listen, Satan may have a throne, but it's a temporary one. He says it's a place where Satan's throne is. Now what does he literally mean? Does he literally mean that the devil lives in their city? No, he he means that there is a stronghold of the enemy in their city that is so strong that's affecting all the other cities. It's, it's, It's a place where evil has been allowed to prevail and the Christians are feeling overwhelmed, but the Lord comes to them and says, I know where you live. I haven't forgotten your address. I didn't forget your phone number. I didn't forget how to get to your house. I know where you live. I'm aware of this. He says, and I know that you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness. That word witness literally is, is, is in the Greek literally martyr. And he says this, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a future week. But let's keep going. He says in verse 14, But I have a few things against you because there are some, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So also you have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, he says pretty clearly what what Balaam's issue was. Balaam... Remember, Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament who was not an Israelite, but he knew the true God. And in some way, he tried to serve the true God, but he was, he was overwhelmed by his own greed. And Balak was a foreign king who saw the people of Israel marching through his land, and he was worried about them. So he hired Balaam to curse Israel. But remember, every time Balaam tried to curse Israel, God turned it around to a blessing. And what we find out later is, so Balaam quit trying to curse Israel. He gave up on it. He tried it a few times. It never worked. He gave up on it, but then he found a way around it. He came to Balak and he said, if you can convince them, he said, get your pretty young girls. And he said, go go and get them to make some friends over there. Seduce them. Convince them to, you know, that 
hey, I'll be your girlfriend, I'll be your wife, if you'll just, you know, I'm not telling you you can't worship your God, but maybe worship mine too. And eventually it compromised the Israelites so much that many people died because of that idolatry. See, what they could not do, what Satan had no power, Satan had no power to touch them. He tried. They tried to curse them. He couldn't curse them. They were under the blessing of God. Balaam looked over him and said, these people have the shout of a king amongst them. Satan couldn't touch the blessed of the Lord, but they gave it away. What he could do was seduce them, trick them, give them a little bit of this. They turned to idolatry. And so Jesus is saying, that's going on in your church right now. It's going on in your church. You've, you've let it go too far. There are people in your church who are trying to mix the things of the world. Remember, they're in a very pagan city. And he says, you got some people in your church that are bringing in some immorality, some, some, some sexual immorality, some idolatry. And in fact, when he talks about the Nicolaitans, he doesn't spell out exactly what that is. But many scholars believe that the Nicolaitans were followers of a man named Nicholas who taught the church to mix Christianity with their former idolatry. Now that still happens today, doesn't it? It happens in every culture too. See, in our heads, we, we identify, oh yeah, in that culture they do, or in that culture they do, but in our culture we do too. In every culture, you see an attempt to mix a little bit of the things of God with the things of the world. And in their day, Nicholas had convinced these people, as far as we know, this is what he's talking about, and it certainly ties into what he says about Balaam, that they are mixing the, 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 the worship and the, the, the discipleship of Jesus, they're mixing Christianity with their old pagan ways and saying, well, let's just take the good parts. Anybody here think that's a good idea? It's kind of what we do at Halloween, right? You know, Halloween is almost entirely based on customs of my British culture. You go back and seek my ancestors, then you see the roots of all that stuff. Feeding the dead, that's where trick-or-treat comes from, feed the dead. That's where, you know, um, the idea of scaring away bad spirits by carving faces in the pumpkins. And hey, listen, you can carve a face in the pumpkin in March and I don't care. But there's something about that holiday that, that it, it's interesting because it's called a holiday, a holy day, because it came from an All Saints Eve thing. They believed, and this was when the church got really messed up. The church believed that there was a day where we honor all the saints. Well, that's okay, I guess. It's not terribly bad. But then people start to believe, well, maybe that's the day when all the dead people kind of come up and start bugging us. Then they start to believe maybe the night before. That, that November 1st is all about the dead, so maybe the night before the dead come out, we better make them happy. We don't want them mad at us. So they develop a, a whole holiday around it by mixing, because that's really, it was Druidism that they tried to mix with Christianity. See, in every culture you see this, and we might think, well, now we don't deal with it anymore because we really don't have any superstition. We really don't, you know, most of the people in our culture don't even believe in anything. That's the problem. So what do we mix? We try to mix our, 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 we try to mix our culture, even if it doesn't have a God attached to it, it's still a religion. It's still worshiping an idol. So he says, I've got a problem that you've let this go on. He says in verse 16, therefore repent. How many of you know what repent means? Repent means, the, the literal word means to change your mind, but when you change your mind, your actions change too, right? 
Turn around, guys. Turn the other way. Turn from that stuff. Or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And and we'll talk about the rest of this uh, later, but I, I just want you to see what he says. He says, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly. I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember, he said, I'm the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Now he says, if you don't fix this, if you don't repent, I got to come and I'll make war with that sword. What would repentance look like for this church? Because not everybody in the church believes this stuff. In fact, he doesn't even seem like he's talking to the people that believe this stuff. He says, you have some in your church who, who have held on to this. And he says, he says, if I come, I'm going to make war against them. He doesn't say against everybody, but against them with a sword in my mouth. And it doesn't sound like a fun visit from Jesus. We all say, come Jesus, visit us, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In this case, you do not want to visit from the principal. Because he says, when I come, I'm making war. Ouch. Okay, I don't, I don't like that. This may be a case where we understand the mercy of God as he uses that sword in a way to save the body. Sometimes people need surgery. We know this, right? Sometimes there's something on your body or in your body that is killing you, and if you don't get surgery, you're going to die. Now, of course, outside of the miraculous hand of God, but I'm just talking about in, in the natural. There's a tumor, it's got to be removed. What do you do? They cut it out. Well, here he's saying, you've got something that you've allowed to stay in the body and it's going to kill you and I won't allow you to be killed. He says, I'm not going to let my church be destroyed, so I would rather come and I'll take care of this, but there's an easy way and there's a hard way. I'd rather you do it the easy way and it may not be, not be super easy, but it's easier than him coming. He says, you got to repent. What, would, what, what do they have to do? What, what does repentance look like? I think it means they need to stop tolerating this in the church. Now, I'm a very much, I'm not a kind of guy that likes to micromanage everybody's life. I don't like to control everybody. I, I prefer, you know, uh, let's, let's serve the Lord by our free will. You do you, I'll do me, let's do it together. But there are cases where you just can't have that attitude and you have to say, listen, the thing that makes us different is that we're followers of Jesus. And if you're not going to follow Jesus, what are we doing here? Right? <laughs> what, what, what game are we playing? Are we playing house here? Because either we're following Jesus or we're not. Now, I'm not telling you you need to look exactly like me. I'm not telling you you need to dress like me. I'm not telling you you need to do all these things exactly like me. But I am telling you this. There's got to be a line where we either follow Jesus or we don't. And we're not going to be compromised to the place that in, for the sake of getting along, we don't believe anything anymore. That's a problem. That might be an issue. Jesus says, either you deal with it or I'll deal with it. I think the best possible case scenario would be that those people would say, we're not going to believe that anymore. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to leave our idols and worship Jesus. What if they say no? What if they say we like the way we're doing it? Well, then it might be the other, yeah, it might be the other members of the church that say, all right, see ya. You can do that, but you can't do it here. Because Jesus says, if you don't fix this, I'm coming, and I'll handle it. You guys probably know the story, uh, not story, but the, the, the issue that arose in 1 Corinthians when Paul said, 
He said, I've heard what's going on in your church and it's not good. He said, there's stuff going on in your church that even the Gentiles don't do. And he specifically called out a man who had begun to sleep with his father's wife. So not his mom, but his stepmom. And he said, nobody in the church did anything about it. I would just kind of let it go. And see, we're probably not talking about a guy who just got saved. It sounds like we're talking about somebody that's been a part of this church, maybe even in leadership. We don't know that, but maybe even he's got a position. And nobody's saying anything because they don't want to offend anybody. And Paul says, you've become arrogant. You should have mourned. I I think about that, and it, it haunts me at times. I should have mourned but I didn't do it. I didn't do that. I'm, I'm a good boy. You know, I'm a nice guy. What am I doing? Here I am serving the Lord. That's not my problem. That's his problem. He says, oh, no, no, no. It's become your problem because you knew it was happening. It was happening in the church, and it's affecting everybody now because people are looking, and new believers are getting saved. They're coming in the church and going, huh, so that's okay, and nobody's saying anything about it. I want you to see what Paul says. Let's just turn there, 1 Corinthians. You see, a sword seems like a bad thing, but it can be a very good thing when it cuts away the things that are killing you. Right? You know, the, the, the word that he uses in, in Revelation is interesting because it's like different than the, the words you normally use for a sword. Um, there's a word that they use a lot for sword in the New Testament that's talking about like a Roman sword, just a classic sword. The, the, there's one, the one in Hebrews that talks about the word of God is a two-edged sword, sharper and, and, and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's living, it's active. It's, it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart to divide between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. And, and, and that word sword is like a short sword, like a dagger almost. And here we're seeing a word for sword that's that's not even a Roman sword, it's not a Greek sword. It actually came from one of the Eastern nations and it was a curved sword that often you put on the the edge of a long pole and it was one of the ways that that some of the nations fought the Romans because the Romans would come together and they'd be in a tight pack. They'd be shield to shield and they'd march together and they'd cover one another. And these guys would come with these long poles and these, these curved swords and hack at them and it would break up the line, it would divide them. And it actually kind of looked like, you ever seen like a, a Sith that they used to, uh, a, you know, that they would, they would harvest? Yeah, it was Scythe, Sith, you know, you know what I'm talking about. And that they'd harvest the wheat, you know what I'm talking about? It looks kind of like that. And uh, so, so these guys would fight the Romans this way and they start hacking and they would divide the line. And in a way, it's, it's, to me, in my mind, I could see a picture of Jesus cutting away the, the, the infection, cutting away the bad stuff and saying, I'll come with the sword and I will cut this away, but it won't feel as good as if you do it yourself. Don't let it get that far. You know, there are some things even medically that that would be better if we didn't let them get that far, right? If you handled it now, sure, you can get a pacemaker, but, you know, sometimes if you had just, you know, not, this is not the case with everybody's heart, obviously, but there are some people who have heart issues and if they had had a different uh, exercise level or diet, it might have been different. Now, some people, it's genetic. It's not their, there's nothing they could have done. But sometimes there's things you could have done. And in this case, he's saying, there's something you can do right now that'll save the surgery. 
He says in 1 Corinthians, he says in verse 1, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you. Now, this word immorality is specifically talking about a sexual immorality. It's, it's actually the word that we get our word pornography from. He says, it's immorality of a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would have been removed from your midst. What would be the best thing that could happen? I think the best thing that could happen is this, this guy says, I was wrong. But you know, he's hardened his heart so much that he's not, he's not turning around. The Bible talks about some uh, uh, people who've been in it so long. This doesn't usually happen to a new believer. This happens to someone who's, who knows better. That it says their consciences have been seared. You ever, anybody's hand ever been seared? Or a body part was seared? And you no longer have sensitivity there anymore? You know, I have calluses on my fingers. It's not from being burned. It's from playing guitar. But I can't really feel, I'm not, I can't feel um, a sensitive touch there. I can feel pressure, but I can't really feel something. A lot of times you get a scar, you can't feel what you used to feel. You just feel, you know, you have to press hard and, and then you feel something. He's saying their consciousness has become seared. In this case, this guy knew better, but he just kept doing it. You know, that's different. That's different than, than falling in and, and saying, Lord, I shouldn't have done that. We've all done that, amen? <laughs> I mean, haven't we? We've all, we've all done something we regret. We've all had instances where we had to repent, thank God, where we had to turn from something. We've had instances where we, we, we let the moment get to us and, and we fell into the flesh and, and we had to repent for that because maybe you said something you should have said or shouldn't have said. Maybe you thought something you shouldn't have thought or you did something you shouldn't have done. We all do that and thank God God's working on us. Maybe we're, hopefully we're doing it less. But, you know, thank God that's the blood of Jesus covers us and his mercy is new every morning and praise the Lord. This is not the same thing. This is a man who has no desire to repent. He's not slipping into this. He chose it. And he chooses not to get out of it. So what does Paul say? You should remove, this guy should have been removed a long time ago. Why? Because now what you've tolerated, you've endorsed. This is not a guy who's trying to get better. You know, aren't you thankful that when you came in the door of the church, nobody checked you and sat you down for an interview and said, what have you done wrong? <laughs> Tell me all your sins in the last 48 hours. What, aren't you glad that when you first got saved, Jesus didn't give you a list of all the things that you got to change? Why? You couldn't, have, you couldn't have handled it. We're all growing. We're all moving from grace to grace, from glory to glory. We're all stepping further up and further in. And, and thank God I'm not the same person I used to be. There's room for that. You know, Jesus called. He said, I haven't come for the, for the well. I came for the sick. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinners. And so Jesus understood that the people that were coming and he was eating with weren't perfect on day one. There are people that are getting saved and coming into the church and they've got issues. And Jesus says, come here. Come here. I'll, I'll fix you. And it won't all happen the first Sunday you're at church, but I will cause you to grow and be healed and restored, and, and step by step you become more like Jesus. Right? So this is not telling us, have you got any sinners in the church? Cast them out. 
Because we've all, we all would have had to leave the church. But what he's talking about is a man who knew better, who refuses to change, who's mature enough that he should have known better. He refuses to do it different. It's, it's, a, it's, an, it's, it's a shame on the whole church. And he says this. He says in verse, uh, well, we said he should have, you should have mourned. He should have been removed from your midst. Why? Not because he sinned, but because he refused to not sin. You understand the difference, right? <laughs> Unrepentant, willful, rebellious sin is quite different than a slip-up. This is somebody that just won't change. They're resisting the work of the Spirit. He says this. He said, you should have removed them from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. Well, hang on. I thought we weren't supposed to judge anybody. Apparently, in this case, he was. He said, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. What in the world does that mean? Because that's a very troubling verse, isn't it? What does he mean? D does he mean, hey, does he mean he, he asked the Lord, hey, send Satan just to mess this guy up? No, I don't think so. I think what he means is he will be removed from the protection of the church. He will be removed from the fellowship of the church and all that that provides. This guy's got to go, and he will find out. He'll be in the, back in that domain where he was before he got saved, in that place where he's out there, and it's, it's the devil's domain. He said, and it's going to hurt him for a bit, but in the end, his soul will be saved. Can I give you some good news? Because you probably need it right now. In 2 Corinthians, it talks about a man that's been restored and come back to repentance. And I have a hunch it's the same guy. And Paul says, I've accepted him, and you should too. And he says, you affirm your love for this guy. I think it worked. I think it worked, and it was tough love. But it was basically saying, if you're not going to follow Jesus, what are you doing here? You're affecting everybody because there's new people coming in and they're copying you. And they're saying, well, I guess this is okay. He says here, look, he explains himself. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so in fact you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. So you get a little bit of yeast in the dough, the whole lump of dough is going to have yeast in it. He says, so you need to remove this. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I write you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Then he explains that and he says, I didn't mean, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. Do you see what he's saying? He said, I told you not to associate with immoral people. He says, but I wasn't talking about the world. You need to associate with them. Isn't that interesting? See, he, he's not saying don't go to work anymore. There's sinners there. He's not saying, you know, he said you would have had to leave the world. He says, he goes on and he says in verse 11, look at this. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Why? 
Because here's somebody who has felt the Spirit of the Lord say, stop, and he says, I don't want to. That's a bigger problem than somebody who comes off the street and has got issues. Because somebody who comes off the street, comes to Jesus, has got issues, Jesus can work on this person. Your friend at work doesn't know Jesus. How in the world are they supposed to live a righteous life? Can someone overcome sin without Jesus? Can you do it? You can't do it. How in the world could you do it? You cannot overcome sin without the blood of Jesus, without the power of Jesus. So when we're railing at those sinners in the world and why they need to get their life together, they can't get their life together. Not until they know Jesus. So if we kept away from them and said, we're not going to come in contact with you until you get your life straight, how will they ever know Jesus? So Paul says, I'm not telling you to stay away from the world. He says, I'm not even telling you to stay away from immoral, covetous, idolatrous people in the world. They're in the world. Of course they're acting like the world. He says, I'm, I'm telling you to stay away from someone who calls himself a brother and keeps doing that stuff. Because that's a person that has willfully rebelled against God. And he says, don't even eat with these people. Wow. You know, eating was a very important part of fellowship in the early church. Because to eat with them in that culture meant I accept you, I receive you. Science tells us now that when we eat with someone, your brain sends out certain chemicals that makes you feel good, pleasure, but it also bonds with the person you're experiencing it with. When you eat, your brain says, I like this, this is good. It releases certain endorphins, but when you're with people that you're experiencing that chemical with, you bond with them. It's interesting that breaking of bread was so important to these people, eating with each other, and why it meant a lot for them to say, don't eat with somebody that's willfully said, I don't care what Jesus says, I'm going to do my own thing. He says this. He says, don't even eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So here's what he's saying. He says, don't judge the world. God will take care of them, but we need to judge ourselves. Remove the wicked man from, from amongst yourselves. Once again, that's not talking about somebody that just got saved. This is talking about somebody that knows better and has chosen not to obey the Lord. Just don't, don't let this person there. I know this is not a fun shout, run around the church topic. But do you think it might come up? Do you think we're going to get to the second coming of Jesus without approaching this issue? I'll tell you, we haven't. We've had to deal with this before. We may have to deal with it again. Nobody in the room as far as I know. <laughs> you know, this is not an issue of somebody having a, a, a slip up, a stumble, a fall. This is somebody who's chosen, made a choice. No, I'm going to do my own thing. And Jesus is telling them here through Paul, and he's telling the church in Revelation, you need to get these people out. You, you, can't keep, you can't mix these things. He says, if you can't take care of it, I'll take care of it. And that, that goes back to that thought of the sword that cuts away the infection, it cuts away the tumor. A sword never feels great. I mean, I imagine if you had to stay awake during surgery, you wouldn't be smiling the whole time, would you? Without any 
anesthetic without any sort of painkiller? Do you think you'd just be like, this feels great, man. This feels like massage. No, you wouldn't. It's quite painful. That's why Jesus says, if you take care of this yourself, I don't have to come and do this. I want to remind you of what Jesus said in the book of John. He said to them, he goes, I'm the true vine, and you're the branches. And he says, my father is a vine dresser. I says, he, he cuts away anything that doesn't bear fruit, and he, he, those that are bearing fruit, he prunes them so that they'll bear even more fruit. Which means, how many of you in this room would, would believe I'm bearing some fruit in my life? I would hope it's everybody. Because he says, if you're not bearing fruit, you, there's, you, know, you just you get cut off. There's some fruit in your life. It may not be as much as you want. Praise the Lord. We should have goals. But you're bearing some fruit, right? He says, if you're bearing fruit, good news, I'm going to prune you. And I want to be pruned. Keep adding to me. Just keep giving me more. He says, well, I might have to take some away that's, that's sucking life out of you. You know why we prune, a, a, a prune like an actual vine? We prune a plant because there's something that's not bearing fruit on that plant. It's not, maybe it might not be in a good position. It might be in a bad spot. It's not receiving sunlight or whatever, but it's not, it's not being productive. And it's sucking resources from that plant, right? If you cut it off, everything will be healthier. So thank God, Jesus is not going to cut me off, but he might cut some things out of my life that are, that are sucking life out of me. They're taking up space. They're taking up time. They're take, and, and he might say, listen, you could be way more fruitful if you didn't have this. Or it might be me just clinging to some of my old ways, and he says, this is slowing you down. I want to get rid of this so you might bear more fruit. Now, Jesus says, he goes on to say in this, in this passage, he goes on to say to his disciples, you are already pruned because of the word that I spoke to you. Wow. Suddenly, pruning sounds better than it did a couple minutes ago. Because, oh, wait, we could just have a talking to and have this over with? Thank God. Do you actually think Jesus took the disciples in the back and spanked them? No, he, he, he taught them, he corrected them. And sometimes it wasn't always easy. Remember, he's the guy that said to Peter, uh, get behind me, Satan. He's the guy that comes down the mountain and the disciples are frustrated. Someone comes to him and says, your disciples tried to cast a demon out of my boy and they failed. And I'm sure they expect Jesus to say, hey, don't talk about my little, my little, my, my little friends that way. But Jesus says, you wicked and perverse generation. How long do I have to be with you? And they're like, what the? We were, just, we were trying. It's not like we didn't try. We tried. So sometimes Jesus' words weren't always, you know, pansies and butterflies. But, you know, he loved them and they knew he loved them, right? He never said anything out of anger. He never said anything out of frustration. He said everything out of love even when it was tough. But he said, you're pruned because I spoke to you. Thank God. Don't you think that's the way we should be pruned? Don't you think tonight, the Lord may talk to you tonight, and that's his method of pruning you? But if that doesn't work, it gets harder. Do you know what I'm saying? Our first instinct should be to obey the word of the Lord. All right, Lord, you say to quit, I'm going to quit, but I'm going to do it in your power. You know, <laughs> I don't think anybody's doing what this guy did in 1 Corinthians. But if you did, stop doing it. But this man heard, 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 and refused 
So then Jesus says, it's going to get hard. So Paul said, it's going to get hard. You're going to have to kick this guy out. Jesus says to the church, if they won't repent, they got to get out. So that I can save the life of that church. See, Jesus loves the church. He really does. He loves the church. He'll do anything to save it. And sometimes that take, that's tough measures if we re, refuse and resist and resist. So here's what I want to say to you tonight. I'm going to wrap it all. If you hear nothing else, hear this. The Lord still speaks to his church. And he still speaks to you. And most of the things that the Lord says to us encourage and, and build faith in us and, and excite us. But, you know, there's going to be times where the Lord speaks to you in a corrective tone. And he says, I've got something you need to correct. Like he said to these churches, you need to correct something. I pray that we would allow the Father to prune us. And we'd be pruned by that word. And we'd say, yes, Lord, thank you. You know, it, it doesn't feel good when you're corrected by somebody, does it? Sometimes you're like, you know, let me do my thing. Quit bugging me. Quit correcting my grammar. But the word correct means to make straight. Right? So the Lord is not criticizing you because you're not good enough. He is correcting crooked things so that they might be made straight so that a way would be prepared for the Lord in your life. So that you can bear fruit. So that you can be an instrument that God can use. What does Paul say? Cleanse yourself of these things so that you might be a vessel of honor useful for the master's use. We want to be a church that receives every single soul that comes through those doors looking for Jesus. And if they come filthy and dirty and sinful, bring them on. We will love them through it all. This is not saying stay away from sinners because Paul said, hey, God will judge the world. But it says, listen, there's going to have to be some growth at some point. And I've worked with people who struggle with addiction. I've worked with people who struggled with anger. I've worked with people who were abused and, and have a tendency, if not checked, to be abusers themselves. And I know what it's like to walk through that with someone and say, you don't have to be what you thought you had to be. And I know what it's like for Jesus to say, I will deal with this thing later. I'm going to deal with this thing first. You know what I mean? Somebody's got like 15 things that are issues in their life. And Jesus says, let's just start with the big ones here. Let's start with this. This is the root. And then I'll fix all this other stuff. But they were, you know, I heard that they were doing this. And it, well, you know what? I'll handle that. But right now I'm working on this. And they're still growing. They're getting closer to Jesus every day. You can see them. They may not be where they're going to be eventually, but they're still moving forward. I love those people because I'm still one of these people. But you know, doesn't matter what part of the road you're on. If you're on the road and I'm on the road and we're both going the same direction, that's, a, that's success. But there are some who've turned their back and said, I'm not going that way anymore. And in fact, they've gone the opposite direction. And they've heard the Lord say, stop, stop, stop. And they kept going. And he says, you got to remove that from your midst. He says, if you can't take care of it, I'll do it. So, I want us to be an excited church, a happy church, a faithful church, a rejoicing church, but I also want us to be a repentant church. Amen? A church that is quick to repent. You know, that doesn't mean that you always have something to feel bad about. 
Because you know what? The Bible says that there is a sorrow according to the will of God that produces repentance, which leads to salvation, deliverance, which is a salvation without regret. Which means when you turn, you don't regret it for the rest of your life. You move forward. We've got to be a church that moves forward. But sometimes to move forward, you've got to cut some, you've got you to say, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm quick to repent when I'm corrected. I read this letter from Jesus. And the first instinct is to say, Jesus, that's pretty harsh. But the real truth is it's so merciful. Because Jesus is interested in saving the life of that church. He didn't just throw them away. He told them what they could do to fix it. Don't you know you have a Savior who knows where you live and who is not abandoning us and doesn't sit back and say, I don't care what you do as long as you're there when I show up. He cares for this church. He cares for the people. And there'll be times where he'll speak to us and say, I want you to change this. Can we all agree to be people that are quick to repent? And say, yes, Lord, you can do that in me. And I'll tell you something. I had a woman that, and I'm about to close. I had a woman that um, from, from Loon Lake, she wasn't originally from that reserve. She was from another reserve. But she emailed me, and she said, I got all these issues. And it was, it was issues like we're reading about here. She said, I, I, I don't know. She said, the world tells me what I'm doing is fine because they say everything's fine. But I feel like this is something that all of a sudden, now that I've been following Jesus, I don't feel right about this anymore. What should I do? And I said to her, can I give you some good news? She said, I'm afraid I won't know how to quit. I said, the good news is this. The grace of God always follows the voice of God. So anytime the Lord says, it's time to let that go, it's time for you to quit that, there's power to do it. The power is there to do it. The grace is there to do it. The strength is there to do it. Something you could not let go of before you knew Jesus. Now you can because the victory is in him. Thank God. Paul said, I keep doing the things I hate to do. Who will save me from the body of death? And a lot of Christians stop reading right there, but it goes on. It says, but thanks be to God. And it begins to tell you, here's how we overcome the flesh. By the Spirit. Because there is now no condemnation. To them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not out of, after the flesh, but walk by the Spirit. And this is the truth of what we're saying tonight. I'm not telling you you need to be perfect. In fact, none of us are. I'm telling us we need to not resist the voice of God. Because that sword is a healing sword. That sword is a loving and merciful sword. It is not a sword that's sent to hurt you or destroy you. It's a sword that's meant to heal you. It is a surgeon's knife, not a butcher's dagger. And if you'll let the Lord work on you, He'll remove what shouldn't be there. And I never want to be that guy who says, now nah, I'll work on everybody else but not me. I want to be the one that is quick. Because I'll tell you, it's easier when you respond quicker. <laughs> thank God for it. Let's thank God for his mercy. I want you to stand with me. We're just going to praise the Lord together.